0: I will be reading from 2 Kings, chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served as Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Amram said. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, with this letter, I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I bring, can I kill and bring back to life? What does this fellow, why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me? When Elijah, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elijah's house. Elijah sent a messenger to say to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot, and cure me my leprosy. Are not Abana and far, far the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's serp- servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you have not done it? How much more then, when he tells you, wash and be cleansed, So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored, and he became clean like that of a young boy.
1: And our second lesson this morning comes from the beginning of the book of Isaiah. This is the vision of Isaiah, son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough, enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who asked this from your hand? Trample my courts no more. Bringing offerings is futile, incense an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and calling of convocation, I cannot endure solemn assemblies with iniquity. Your new moons and your appointed festivals my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you stretch out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Come now, let us argue it out, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be like snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become white like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and you rebel, You shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray together. Come Holy Spirit, open a space in our hearts, in our minds, open a space in our daily lives that we might hear the call and the challenge of these words and respond as disciples of your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So there's a lot of leprosy in the Bible, right? It's kind of splashed all over the Old Testament and the New Uh, There are two whole chapters in Leviticus that tell people how to deal with leprosy. Leprosy in people's skin, uh, leprosy in food, and leprosy in the walls of your house. But even though it's all over the Bible, we're not exactly sure what the ancient Israelites were talking about. It's medically probably different than the things we consider leprosy today. But the rules about leprosy are very clear. You're to be separated from the community. A leprous person is not allowed to gather in worship or go out in public. So it's pretty clear, whatever the disease was, it was uncurable and it was pretty miserable. And I'm thinking that of those of us gathered here this morning, there are probably some who know what it's like for yourselves or for a family member to have an incurable disease. I was just home uh, last weekend, and heard the story of a friend I grew up with. He's been mysteriously ill now for about six months. He went from being a a fit and healthy father of two young boys to a man who's been home from work for weeks at a time. Uh, He had double pneumonia. His voice was so hoarse that he could barely talk on the phone at work, and he's been tired all the time and in that past six months he's been hospitalized twice for about a week each time you can imagine he's feeling pretty desperate you know what that feeling is like even I'm sure the doctors just don't know what's wrong with him and they're not sure how to find a cure so he has lined up for anything that anybody has suggested, whether that's changes in his diet or or new supplements or probiotics. He's been on a, a nebulizer, he's been on steroids, he's been on antihistamines, he's been on antibiotics. This past week, he was scheduled for exploratory surgery. I'm pretty sure that my friend knows exactly how Naaman feels in the biblical text that we're reading this morning. Naaman, the commander of the Syrian army, was desperate for a cure. And you know that he's desperate because the story starts in a very peculiar place. A peculiar place that many Bible stories start, with an unnamed woman. She's a young Israeli woman who's been captured and been made a slave in Syria probably by a raiding party of Syrian army soldiers, the kind of troops that Naaman would be in charge of leading. And this unnamed young woman, she sees the leprosy and the suffering of her captor, and remarkably, she has compassion on him. She prays for Naaman, and she tells him, if only you were in Israel, I know that God could heal you through the prophet Elijah. This young woman has a small act of faith. This unnamed young girl sets a whole series of events into action. Naaman hears about this prophet in the far off land of Israel and in his desperation, he goes to his king and asks for permission to travel there to be healed. And you notice that Naaman is a pretty big deal. When he goes to ask the king for permission to travel, he gets not only permission, but a letter from the king. And he gets talents of silver and talents of gold. In fact, the amounts listed are about 1,000 pounds of silver and 150 pounds of gold and 10 suits of the finest clothing. A huge treasure. And Naaman takes off for Israel with an entourage of horses and chariots and men in armor. And they roll up to talk to the king of Israel. Imagine how the king feels, seeing this procession coming down the road, right? Soldiers from a foreign army are riding up to the capital. And the commander of the foreign army comes into town with a bunch of gifts of gold and silver and a message from the foreign king. And this message says, Thank you in advance. Thanks for healing my soldier of this uncurable disease. Love the king of Aram. What would you do if you got that message? The king of Israel is not sure what to do. The king, unlike the servant girl whose faith shines so vibrantly at the beginning of the story, the king tears his clothing. And the king goes into mourning. He knows that he's just been placed in a catch-22 situation. If he refuses the request from the king of Aram, then he's probably going to go to war. And if he accepts the request of the foreign king, but fails to cure his soldier of this incurable disease, then he'll probably go to war. But Elisha, the prophet, comes to the rescue. He sends word to the king and says, tell Naaman to come down to my house and I'll teach him a lesson. And Naaman, he rolls up heavy, right, to the prophet's house. If, if Naaman were a rapper, I would imagine that this would be a, a long line of uh, foreign cars, right, all blacked out with tinted windows, and they roll up to Naaman's house. Instead, it's a whole line of chariots and horses and soldiers. Naaman is showing his force. Showing his power, showing his wealth, showing his privilege. But God's power in this story gets displayed in an entirely different way, not in the usual ways that the world recognizes power. In fact, Naaman rolls up heavy and he's expecting a welcome from the prophet. He's expecting that the prophet will come out, wave his hands, say some fancy prayers, maybe even bow down to Naaman. Maybe he'll have a caterer. Maybe he'll throw a party. Maybe he'll have signs and wonders from the heaven. But that is not what Naaman gets, is it? You know, Naaman is quite the alpha male in this story. I I found a a similar story in the news this week. You know, there's a new movie coming out with Dwayne the Rock Johnson and uh, Jason Statham. Word came out this week that these two alpha males have some special things written into their movie contract. They each have a clause that determines how many times they'll take a punch in the movie. And that makes sense at first, right? You think, well, they probably, they're pretty faces. They don't want to get beat up too much. But the the clause in their contracts is not only about the actors themselves, but also about their stuntmen. It's about their character and their perception. Neither one can take more punches than he gives out. There's a ratio in their contract. And neither character can lose a fight in the movie. So sorry if I just ruined the Fast and the Furious 7 for you, but... Well, Naaman reminds me of this. Rolling up heavy. But God's power in the story is channeled through a much more humble route, Through a slave girl who prays for her master, to a prophet who refuses to show honor to a dignitary. Elisha doesn't even come out of his house. Instead, he sends a messenger to the door. And he tells Naaman to go down to the river and wash the dirty little Jordan River. Not one of the great and magnificent rivers of Syria, but the Jordan. And I had to imagine, what if somebody told my friend that all he had to do was go down to the Swatera Creek, right? Maybe to that spot just below the sewage treatment plant. Before it dumps into the Susquehanna, and if he would wash there seven times, he'd be made clean. I'm guessing that Nathan would probably go and do that if he was desperate enough. Now, Naaman could have gotten angry, uh, and it could have gone just the way the king of Israel had feared. What if the commander of the army had left in a rage? What if he drove home to Syria, got more horses, more chariots, more men, and came back to burn the city down? But again in the story, God works in a a humble and a mysterious way through another unnamed servant. One of Naaman's servants comes up to him and asks a question. What if the prophet had asked you to go and do something difficult? Would you have done it? What if this had been a great quest? What if Naaman was to go on a a long journey? What if it was a difficult task to prove that Naaman was worthy of being healed? A, A big and strong man like him would surely have spent whatever it takes to go and do that. I don't know if you saw the news stories in the last few months about climbing Mount Everest, right? They've had problems there because it's getting so crowded up on the mountain. There are so many foreign tourists who pay a guide that want to go up and say they've climbed the tallest mountain in the world. There are so many that there is now about 50 tons of garbage that have been left up on Mount Everest. There have been several deaths this spring because the mountain is so crowded. And now, you're not just like Sir Edmund Hillary if you've climbed Mount Everest, but you join the ranks of 10,000 people who have now climbed the mountain. Do you wonder what the accomplishment's like anymore, right? Sure, you've climbed Mount Everest, but it's not very exclusive anymore, is it? The servant asks Naaman, if it was something difficult, would you have not gone and done it? Why not go and do this simple thing? Washing in the Jordan River. And Naaman has grace, a particular kind of grace that allows him to hear advice from from outside his normal sphere of influence. He listens to the slave girl, and later on he listens to this unnamed servant. I'm guessing maybe that comes from his military experience. As a good commander, Naaman is able to hear what the lowest of his troops is telling him not only able to hear it, but also able to learn from them. Well, Naaman goes down to the river, and he washes seven times, and his leprosy is washed away. It says his skin is made new like that of a young boy. But something else also happens. Naaman takes a new posture. It says that he turns... And returns back to Elijah's house. The same word in Hebrew is the root word for repent. And he comes back to Elijah to give thanks. This time in the posture of someone who has repented. This is the kind of deep change that God's grace can write into our hearts. came up with a sermon title earlier in the week, Stop Pretending. I was looking primarily at Isaiah's call to the people. He wants them to come back to a true form of worship. And he tells the people that he's afraid for too long they've just been going through the motions. Sure, they've been offering their prayers, and yes, they've been showing up with their sacrifices— But they're going through the motions without really touching their hearts and changing in a way that will change their day-to-day life. And there are a few things I think we need to stop pretending. We have to stop pretending that we've got it all under control. Like Naaman does in the story. When he arrives at the prophet's door, he's not there to ask for help but to command it. But what if he stopped pretending he's got it all under control? What if we stop pretending there's no hope? Like the king of Israel who sees the foreign leader coming to his door and tears his clothing in mourning, not able to imagine a way out of this sticky situation. Or what if we stop pretending that we'll never make a difference? Look at the young girl at the beginning of the story. She's got no power. She's got no status. She's got no standing. She's a slave captured into a foreign land. And yet, she still has faith. And she practices compassion even on the people who are enslaving her. Incredible. Incredible. What if we stop pretending that everything's normal and everything's okay? I woke up and turned on the news this morning to check on the shooting that had happened in Texas and found there had been another one overnight in Ohio. Did you know in America this year, there have been 290 mass shootings? That's defined where four or more people are shot and injured at the same time in the same place. Just this week, that includes California and Texas, and now Ohio. That statistic includes my own hometown about six weeks ago where there was a quadruple homicide. We've got to stop pretending. Stop pretending that this is okay. We've got to stop pretending that there's nothing that can be done. We've got to stop pretending that coming to church and offering our thoughts and our prayers is enough. We've got to stop pretending, like Naaman stopped pretending. Naaman, whose heart was changed... In the story, God's power flowed through humble and unexpected channels. And Naaman returned to the prophet to repent of his sins. The great warrior took off his armor, climbed down from his chariot, left behind his war horse. What would it take for us to stop pretending? What if we came to the communion table today with that same spirit that Naaman carried with a humility? What if we stop pretending? Stop just going through the motions? But as Isaiah challenges us, what if we are truly changed by our worship I leave you with this challenge from the prophet. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Thanks be to God who challenges us to stop pretending. Amen.